Hello and welcome to episode 342 of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 1st of October 2020. Jesus. And my name is Chris Thurston and I am joined by Marsh Davies. Hello. And Tom Senior. Good day. Tom Senior has recently podded. He's, he's birthed a brand new podcast into this very network uh, at long last after talking about it for what feels like forever. Uh, you're doing a, a film and TV podcast now. That's right. And it's creatively called the uh, Crate and Crowbar Film and TV Podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that should be easy. To, I, I couldn't think of a cleverer name. <laughs> so I just sort of said what it was. Well, well Tom, I think that's wise <laughs> because the last time we named a podcast, we set a trap for ourselves by calling yes. it Miniatures Monthly. Exactly. So there's no part of Crate and Crowbar Film and TV Podcast that I think could become a lie. That's that's <laughs> correct. And um, I've deliberately not set a cadence for this yet because uh-huh. I'm not sure like how often we'll be available. But the, the basic thing is uh, I joined by Jamie Britton, uh, a brilliant articulate television writer who's actually worked in the biz. And we just sit down and talk about stuff we've been watching recently and films that we love. Um, so we're hoping to continue that for a long time. Uh, so yeah, it, it should appear, just pop up in your uh, Quaint Crowbar feed. And, and as I've said on the podcast, we only charge for the core episodes of the, the, like the gaming podcasts uh, for Quaint Crowbar. So this stuff is just like bonus extra stuff that you can enjoy, hopefully. Um, and yeah, I've had a great time doing it. I'm recording the next one tomorrow with Jamie, and that'll be hopefully up on Monday or soon. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah. Give it <laughs> Call it Film and TV Monday or soon, and just stick to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, c- cover all the bases, <laughs> for sure. Uh, so gaming news that's something we ostensibly cover um what what is the gaming the gaming news what is the the hot thing and not the star wars thing because we'll get to that what else has happened that's less important well the maniacs only went and did it they only went and put minecraft in smash brothers my god i know who could have seen that coming well presumably everybody at microsoft who <laughs> you know, under nda but um yeah the internet's yeah. excited about that my twitter feed comprised of a large number of people who don't normally talk about Minecraft are um, strangely enraptured by this news in a way which I did not expect. Yeah, so I so I don't care about this at all. Um, so I wonder if <laughs> <laughs> one of you two could uh, tell Checking me Checking in why. with Tom Senior, absolutely correspondent. <laughs> um, I, just, I, I wonder if like, uh, one of you guys could explain to me why this, is, this matters. <laughs> no. Okay. Well... <laughs> It's the only thing that's happening. Like, it's yeah. flipping 2020. Nothing is happening. There's some new consoles coming out, I suppose, at some point. But apart from I, that, what are we going to talk about? I don't really know what I can or should say in this environment, because obviously, um, um, uh, as, as Marsh is someone with some experience of working in this genre, I'll tell mm. you this. I'll give you my mildest take. Uh, this is a mango and lime take. I am interested in, and I've mentioned before in the podcast, I think that I started to genuinely find it satisfying when something is well project managed. When something (laughs) like this happens, this is a a fascinating uh, thing to come into being. And I imagine this is the case whenever Smash Brothers does like a cross, a real big crossover with something that's quite unlike the kind of Nintendo cast that gets plugged into it. But I'm very interested in how they go about representing something from a very different game, uh, particularly bringing it into a fighting game that presumably needs to be finely balanced for lots of different reasons. Like 
you know, that design team, that core design team on Smash Brothers must have strong feelings about how a Smash, what makes a Smash Brothers character and how they operate and how they can be balanced against the rest of the set and which, what kind of ideas are missing and, and how that would all fit together. And marrying that with what must be a truly, a truly, uh, pretty epic approval process mm. given the the companies involved is genuinely sort of impressive and i appreciate that's the most like you know when they did that little trailer and mario is alone in the dark and then the wall gets kicked down and look it's steve from minecraft i bet no one in the world apart from me was thinking well that must have taken quite a few zoom calls in these conditions <laughs> but that's what i was thinking and i genuinely like i'm a little you know polite opera clap like good for them like that's Microsoft not easy. Teams calls, I think you'll find. Oh god, yeah, of course. Mm, of course. Sorry. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Skype. There's a lot of Skype calls going on there, you know. Yeah. I, I'd say I'm very impressed. I mean, I don't I don't play Smash Brothers and I don't I don't particularly care about that style of game and uh, I, I no longer work for uh Mojang, so I don't have to care <laughs> about Minecraft. Um so the intermixing of those two isn't necessarily something that really gets me going, but I am really impressed by how true to the sort of general lo-fi jankiness of Minecraft they have <laughs> they have remained. Because I mean, this is not a, a diss on Minecraft, but just like being able to sort of plug uh, what is a completely tonally different art style and animation style into a game in mm. which animations are really super important and yeah. you know readable they have obviously have a huge range of expression most of the characters uh, in smash brothers and minecraft characters do not have a huge range of expression um and yet they've been they've they've remained true to that they haven't kind of added well not noticeable amounts of extra articulation to the characters or their expressions or anything like that um i mm. think this must be the kind of most dissonant character to be introduced to a ensemble fighting cast fighting game cast since maybe smash brothers introduced the we fit characters i think or like mr game and watch yes yeah like, yeah, the best yeah right yeah they have yeah. gone lower fi they have gone lower fi <laughs> yeah um yeah so i did just think of something though and i don't know if this is like a hot games industry insider loop but i just realized something which is i remember back to almost two years now um, in the weeks after uh, Hytale was announced, the game that I'm working on. And I was obviously curious to see what my friends who um, worked or, or work at Mojang would make of it, because obviously same genre team comes from the Minecraft modding community. And uh, I didn't really hear anything until about two weeks later, or like a week and a half later, uh, my phone lights up and I have a text from Owen, obviously our former colleague on PC Gamer, uh, Owen, who now works at Mojang, and my phone in the, the text summary just truncated it to, oi, fucker. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> but the rest of that sentence, I, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along those lines. And um, and the rest of the sentence was, oi, fucker, play Smash Brothers with me, which is the most uh, Owen <laughs> sentiment that you can generate. And so I assume, I assume, and this is definitely not true, but I assume that this entire crossover enterprise began in that with, with that same burst of his energy <laughs> you know what i mean some point in late 2018 shouting oi play smash brothers with me so loudly that um it <laughs> carries across the ocean and eventually we have the steve in minecraft i can only assume that's what happened it definitely isn't checks out good for them though what's the uh, so what's this star wars ah, news yeah. that you're talking about so today is a good day because tonight um star wars squadrons is out which is the 
um, which is EA Motive's Star Wars dog fighting game. I'll probably come on the pod next week to talk about it. And, and you know, thing is, it's probably going to be good. And even if it's just fine, I'll be delighted. So, you know, it's Star Wars has to be, a Star Wars game has to be pretty bad for me to, to reject it outright. But nonetheless, so it's there. It's their sort of um, Star Wars dogfighting sim, basically. I, I know quite a few people who've worked on it, and I'm excited for them. They get to do more Star Wars and a little bit jealous. But um, I, I realize it's one of the only games this year that I've been genuinely, genuinely, genuinely looking forward to, and I'm um, ruining that I, I thought it was going to be coming out tomorrow night, not tonight, and so I didn't book tomorrow off work, and I kind of wished I had because uh, it's rare that I really just want to escape into something but this is one of those things and i think tom you and i have both made tech investments with this game in mind recently oh yes so i want to i just want to fly an x-wing mm-hmm. and feel like i'm actually in that cockpit so mm-hmm. uh, I've, i'm um, trying to source a good flight stick that will work both on the pc and the ps4 because i'm planning to play this game on both platforms um and yep th- there aren't many in supply at the moment but that's my plan. I, 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 yeah. I, want to, I want to be in the fiction. I want to be in there. I want to hear the uh, the zapping of, of the lasers. The whooshing. The, the whooshing. The, yeah, um, all of it. Yeah, I, I love the, the drifting mechanics look awesome. And uh, I'll probably play it in VR as well on PS4. Yeah, and that was my investment. And obviously I'll get to this when I talk about what I've been playing. But I've finally gone in on VR um, basically for this game, which is mm. a bit of a thing. Obviously there, were, there was a critical mass of things. So we can get to it, of things I wanted to play. Um I've made this decision that I'm going for VR, but I'm not going for a flight stick because it is really hard. And I, I know that there are going to be enthusiasts who write in to tell me that there are ways to do this, but being a very left-handed person, it sucks mm. to try and find a flight stick setup, like a hotas yeah. with, with the throttle as well, because they just don't, they don't really exist or your choice is so limited that you're then pushed into a particular expense or a particular kind of type. And like, I think at the end of the day, I will just like I thought about maybe teaching myself to use one right-handed because that's what I did with guitars, so I could do it. But I just I'm just going to use a gamepad. I'm just going to use a gamepad, and that will be. And I'll have VR, and I'll I'll balance my immersion in that way. But but yeah, unfortunately the but maybe I mean I say this now this time next week I probably will change my mind. But hmm. yeah, just get excited about it. I just want to be in the. You, they, they've made all of the noises that I want them to make. Like the entire UI is um, diegetic, so you can switch off all the game stuff and just be in the cockpit and um, look at the dials and instruments and know the soul of your X-Wing is smiling at you. I don't know the fuck I'm talking about. I know the <laughs> sentence is going. I'm just excited about the, the swoopy spaceship. I also I really like the fact they've actually, EA has finally used the Star Wars license to produce a game that seems to lack baggage or mm. any kind of like uh, long-term investment. I think you, I could just play this, get a, like five-hour single-player campaign, and then just have some multiplayer matches for about 20 hours and not have to spend any more money. That's really reassuring. Yeah. Uh, and, and like, it's really like it, EA, this, the talent in their studio is so strong that they're like able to produ- to nail Star Wars in terms of the right. the tone, the atmosphere, how it feels. Uh, but the problem has always been the monetization, the way they've actually kind of exploited the licenses that they have. And this feels like a much more on point, smaller scale thing that is is what I wish they'd been making for years with Star Wars. Right, and I think this is the thing: is again, you know, I can't I can't be happy anymore unless my 
project manager is tickled and <laughs> um they built they built really they probably some of the best um uh the best 3d star wars library that exists for the battlefront games you know mm. they talked about how they went back to the cinema cinematic models and talked to ilm about it and developed this library of assets basically of all the vehicles and the weapons and things and that is a, a which is a theme i'll actually return to when talk about what i've been doing in vr but that's a treasure trove of stuff and you can use it for lots of different games and presumably it speeds up the process of making lots of different kinds of games and i think when they were making battlefront 2 and i was playing lots of the the um starfighter portion of that which was fine there's part of me that sort of was like please just take all these amazing assets and make something else with them and specifically yeah. make what i hope this game is and i appreciate maybe maybe we should return to this in a week where we've actually had a chance to play it because um you know but at least at this point like this is kind of what i wanted them to do is take that library and make something of like modest scope that focuses on getting one thing right um rather than blow blow it out on on something that's trying to do everything let alone trying to monetize everything and i think also yeah. like because that's that's the obstacle like i would have said and this is the thing that's interesting to me from a kind of broader industry point of view previously i would have said that you know flight sims are relatively niche even arcadia flight sims or space sims so there probably isn't sense in a big budget triple a um triple a version of that uh at scale because you know you've got to go and make all those models and generate all those effects and those environments and things the way i kind of feel about it the way it seems to me like battlefront's loot boxes as maligned as they were probably kind of paid for this game <laughs> to exist mm. you know what i mean um you know all that big budget was spent and, and therefore all it needed was was repurposing and tidying up for this which is not to say that the assets are one-to-one repurposings but there was definitely a kind of a through line between those games as they were made they're definitely um, um yeah. it seems like yeah the artists there have definitely earned the trust of disney or, and the stakeholders right. in star wars um with work like battlefront one and two and actually yeah, i was playing battlefront two a few weeks ago and it's great these days um they've stripped a lot of the kind of nonsense out um and I don't think it's a great shooter, but it's a very good Star Wars experience. And yeah. it looks at, sounds absolutely spectacular. Like it's an aesthetic thing. If you want to be in that universe, they could do it. And that, that's what makes me really excited about Squadrons is that I think they could just repeat that. I don't care if it's like a smaller scale game or if it's like there's lower fidelity. I'm just excited about the potential there. Seems quite rare that we get this excited about a game before it's out. <laughs> that's true, actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's hardly anything coming out. That's the trouble. That's true. <laughs> Some spelunky thing, but nah, that's. For, I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's for the Tom's. Something called Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk. <laughs> Cyberplunk. Yeah. Mm. Um. Yeah. Well, we should talk about what we've been playing a little bit. I'm definitely going to bang on about Star Wars a bit later, so uh, let's give everyone a break. Um, <laughs> Tom, you've been thinking about buying. A flight stick, but I believe you have been fiddling with a fight stick. I've uh, I've ordered a fight stick. Oh, I, I get... see, that's different. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've not fiddled, fiddled with it yet, but that comes tomorrow. It's arriving tomorrow. Uh, I've got a, a very nice razor fight stick coming because I want to, as the kids say, get good at fighting games. <laughs> what uh, is this montage you're doing? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know, Chris. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, so to continue, I, I saw it a couple of weeks ago and I described how like I want to take up martial arts and also do this, that, and the other. So I, I'm in full midlife crisis mode uh, and I'm absolutely leaning into it. 
I'm, I'm like 100% <laughs> going for it. So, um, yeah, I'm going to take like French language classes next week. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna do it properly. Get tormented by the Duolingo L <laughs> or um, Babel or whatever the yeah. the next app is for these things. Uh, so yes, um, this is part of that, and it's partly because um, Street Fighter Five went free on PS Plus this month. Mm. So I've got all that downloaded, and uh, it's it's hard. <laughs> it's a difficult game because everyone's very very good at it but i've got loads of beat-em-ups on ps4 and, and um pc so i've got like soul Calibur 6 uh i just got uh, marvel versus capcom um and like dragon ball fighters z and i really really enjoy them so i i love like just putting a podcast on and beating the crap out of a cpu opponent um so i i've really got into tekken 7 to the extent i actually went online which is rare for me and uh did quite well and actually, like, moved up the ranks with certain characters that I was maining. Uh, so I was, I, I quite like the idea of doing it with the tactile feel of a good fight stick that I can sit on my lap, can plug into my PC, can plug it into my PS4, and um, yeah, that's that's going to be my Christmas, I think. <laughs> You've had um, like a fair few fighting game dalliances before, I believe. You are the person I associate with them, I think, on this podcast. Like every now and then. It'll so rise up yeah. as a thing. Like I'll take any opportunity to talk about Guilty Gear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which I've also reinstalled. And there's a new one coming out, I think, uh next year, which I'm very excited about. And I, I love them. I think they're there's something so simple about them. And and they're so like beautifully artistically directed these days. Like Street Fighter Five looks the animations are just incredible. And it's the fact that they the animations have to look good, but also they're extremely functional given like hit frames and the, the, the precision that's required to create a, like a proper competitive fighting game. Uh, and it's like Guilty Gear, Street Fighter V, even Soul Calibur, they all nail it. And it, I just love that precision. I love that, the artistry of that for sure. What else have you been up to? I've been playing Necromunda, um, which is from the creators of Mordheim the digital version of more time uh and i think i suffer from being an enormous fan of both of those tabletop games so they're games yeah. workshop table, tabletop games they both have their own individual vibes so um more time is set in the old world in an old city where meteors have landed and your scrappy warband has to go and rescue fragments of the meteorite um and necromunda is just basically people stuck in the underhive of a giant enormous uh horrific urban structure where it's just made of gantries and pipes basically uh but they're, they're fiercely territorial and they're all punks basically in the in terms of just the aesthetic of the way they dress and stuff like there's proper 1980s sci-fi stuff um and it's a great fantasy and it definitely massively deserves to be turned into a video game both of them do uh, but both of the games have disappointed me and especially Necromunda, unfortunately oh, no. uh, yeah it's, it's really sad because like in presentation terms it looks great i think they've done a great job with the environment the scenery they've done a great job with the character models and how they look and how they talk and the cutscenes, the story and that kind of stuff and um even with the squad building uh, but as a tactics game it's a mess <laughs> so it's a turn-based tactics game and you select your character at the start of each turn, um, one of your many characters, and you alternate turns in that way. And you can 
like travel your, your action points aren't like squares you can just freely roam within a certain boundary to use up your action points and then shoot someone but the this is such a basic problem but the movement zones are absolutely massive like anyone can move miles <laughs> in a given turn and that just ruins all the any strategy that you have because you this is the same problem with more time, right? That's right, yeah. But it's even more severe with Necromunda because there's way more ranged combat in Necromunda. Everyone's got guns. And so if you could just move miles up to a higher level and then get stat bonuses, you just can't plan You can't plan a strategy around it. You just can't... There's no tactical intrigue at all because anyone can move anywhere at any time, pretty much. Um, so there's... There isn't a game. <laughs> There's no game there. <laughs> oh God! Uh, it's just oh, it's such a frustrating problem, and uh, that's the core problem for me. The, the other thing is that the the warbands who are very very characterful in the fiction and very different, uh, but there's almost nothing to differentiate them in this game. Huh. So they all have the same weapon loadouts, and to an extent that's true of Necromunda, but they should have aptitudes that actually let them use different weapons better or access particularly unique weapons um the own and also they should have special abilities they should just have their own special abilities that only that warband can do and there's nothing like that they're all it's basically almost a cosmetic decision uh when you're actually choosing a warband uh which is rough and a shame because it really wastes one of the great strengths of necromunda which is uh, how characterful and brilliant the individual warbands are um so yeah disappointed <laughs> disappointed with that one yeah that sucks because i mean literally the weird thing about listening to this is um to my to the re- immediate left of my mouse right now is a pack of necromunda escher gang tactics cards and to the left of that is my painting desk which has an escher gang on it so i'm yeah. thinking about necromunda a lot at the moment and it's like that's the like the there are i think fantasy or like this kind of skirmish combat structure of tabletop game and the way it lends itself to a tactics game should be obvious but there are different ways of doing that kind of skirmish tactics thing um i've also been um having fun reading the rule book for frostgrave recently which is in that this same oh, space yeah. it's mm-hmm. kind of a successor to mordheim in some ways and that is a game built around the idea that there aren't distinct gangs or factions that you pick between it's more about the kind of interaction of of the kind of the whole you know, set of units and the different things that can happen in the, in the simulation of the game itself, basically. But Necromunda is about how diverse and, and characterful the individual gangs are. Yeah, and definitely. so like the the movement thing, which I had heard before, is just bizarre to me. Like, I, it sounds like there's some intended way to play that no one can figure out. If you know what I mean, like it's such a strange mm. thing. But the gangs being the same is super strange because. Like, I understand not mapping the rule set one-to-one or adapting it in some ways, but, like, pretty core to that Necromunda 40k rule set is, like, it's important to know whether this person is tough or fast or strong or, you know, accurate or any of the other things those stats track. And it's in those variables that you end up getting the character and variety of factions and then special rules and things on top of that. So, like, eliding that is just real odd. Hmm. Yeah. So the visual design really strongly evokes the different gangs' characteristics, right? Correct, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, I remember this from when Necromunda first came out. I haven't played any new iterations of it because I've been out of the Games Workshop world for a long time. But, um, the, the, you know, the big, the big brute guys being big and brutish was, was right. pretty... Um, 
the whole point oh, of that. Yeah, yeah that, the whole identity <laughs> of that warband, right? And 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 yet they wield the same weapons as Orlock, Gang, or Asher. Um, and it's a real shame because, like the, I think the single player mode, you play as the Asher Gang and they're fighting for their territory. And it's actually, I think it's really quite well realized in terms of the cutscenes and the, the voice acting and how they've actually like recreated that that warband. It's just none of that translates into the mechanics at all. Um, so weird. Yeah, it's weird. It's, it's they, weird. They've, they've made a game which recreates the same things that Mordheim was criticised for. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like like Chris says, maybe there is just a secret way to play these, which is not obvious. But I well, can't see why they wouldn't have corrected for for that. No, I mean tactics I, denying. Hmm. It's so frustrating because like, it feels like it's almost there. You know what I mean? Like, there's a, a few kind of important systems changes to the way the actual tactics combat works and some uh, more interesting kind of i think there should be gear pools that are separate for each warband they could overlap um but there are certain things that the big guys can wield that asher can't i think that's a big part of the identity of warband and Mm -hmm. none of that's in there and it's a real shame um i just kind of like i just want to go and tell them what to do (laughs) that sounds terrible but like i'm so i'm so invested in that universe, I, I, I like. I spend a lot of time reading that stuff as well, and, and playing it. That it's a shame to see them almost get there, but not quite it's, understand. It's funny, isn't it? I wonder if part of the issue here is that it's both too close. It's too close and too far away from the game that it's inspired by. So what I mean is, there are a lot of Warhammer Forty Thousand games, but you don't come to each of them and say, "I'm expecting this to be Warhammer Forty Thousand for example, right? Mm. Like you can play Mechanicus or uh, Battlefleet Gothic or whatever. Maybe Battlefleet Gothic is a bad example because people maybe do want it to capture some elements of that specific game. But right. Or um, Dawn of War or Space Marine, Relic Space Marine. And you don't, you, you what you want to do is be in that world and interacting with it in some way, but you're not expecting a, a translation of the exact experience of playing the tabletop game. Yeah. If, the, I, if yeah, sorry, go on. Uh, so uh, the exception is Blood Bowl. Um, which, right. the, the, which is a one-to-one rules recreation. And I'm not sure how successful that it really is because Brutlaw's a very frustrating rule set in many ways. Um, well, but yeah. well, this is what was interesting to me because so right in the beginning of lockdown, the Crank and Crowbar Role Models community, the sort of miniatures wing of, of the Discord, had a um, very successful Blood Bowl tournament that took place entirely using Blood Bowl 2, the video game version, and it was really good fun. And yeah. what was nice about it is it was like, I know that like, I know people who love Blood Bowl to pieces as a game who take it very seriously. And I um, have never really stuck with it. And I think that's because it has a very strange kind of um, identity where it's both this knockabout fun game. But if you're willing to stare directly into the matrix, there's a <laughs> level of finesse it's possible to exert, which turns it into a hyper competitive maths game. Yeah, um, yeah. And then in the middle is is frustration, basically. Um, and so um, I very much approached it in a kind of knockabout way um, and had fun. But the great thing about that was that video game adaptation, which was one-to-one, allowed us to scratch the itch of not being able to play games together in real life by doing it online. Right now, that same community is organizing an Ecromanda campaign, which um, earlier in the summer, really, people were hoping might be able to take part in real life. And now, who knows? And, you know, been actively looking into ways to play Necromunda remotely, including things like Tabletop Simulator and Vassal and other kind of ways of doing uh, tabletop games remotely. And in that sense, you know, you'd love to see a uh, faithful recreation of the tabletop rules that people can jump into and play. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't exist. 
However, the game they've chosen to make is a turn-based tactics game, as the tabletop game is, with squads, which as the tabletop game is. And therefore, it seems to invite that comparison and, like the Mordheim game, fail on those terms, rather than, for example, if they had made, let's say they'd made a cover shooter, you know, set in that world, or a immersive sim. I think, actually, a Necromander immersive sim would be an amazing match yeah. of setting and, and genre. But, you know what I mean? Or, or, you know, something completely different, uh, you know, uh, like, a, you know, even a narrative-driven game, like a visual novel or something. All of those things would work, and I think they would att- they would attract a less kind of disappointed response than this would, because it's like, well, in the tabletop mm. game, I can't run halfway across the board in a single turn, so I shouldn't be able to do it here. Yeah, so you're saying that basically the genre invites too much of a close comparison with the tabletop game. Yeah, and therefore really even if they... people. Right, and so I think in this case, it's maybe both that they've managed to like both make maybe not a great tabletop, uh, so both great t- turn-based tactics game by the sounds of it, but mm. also simply the difference will be hard for people to get over. Yeah. It's, it, it, the additional frustration is that um, I think like a direct one-to-one translation of Necromunda's rules into a digital format would make for a very slow game, yeah. but somehow they've made a different game that is equally slow, <laughs> uh, which is also very unfortunate. And also it's buggy and it crashes a lot and the multiplayer doesn't work. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's basically fucked, <laughs> which is, a, a, again, I love the license. And I think that studio could produce a good game based on these properties. Uh, but it's a classic games workshop thing where they just sort of license it out to someone and hope for the best and um, disappoints everyone, <laughs> frankly. Eesh. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry, Tom. Indeed. I'll get over it. 7 out of 10, <laughs> then? Uh, I gave it, I think, 59. But yeah. Mm. Bit busted. Not very good. Oh. Marsh. Yes, Chris? Take us on a journey to where you are. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. In Bath, my house. Mm. I've been uh, playing Phasmophobia uh, at the behest of friend of pod Richard Stanton. Um, which is a, a sort of... Is this a game where you're terrified of a big shiny stormtrooper played by Gwendolyn Christie? <laughs> <laughs> I would absolutely play that. Um, but uh, chases no, this... you around like the alien in, in isolation. <laughs> well, you've, be... you've sort of half described it, actually. I mean, it is, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's charting the sort of distant lineage of the Five Nights at Freddy's budget spookathon archetype where players are, in fact, chased... Um, by a, a small number or one AI monster around some sort of enclosed space. Um, and usually in a weird recurring trope of the genre, operate cameras, which just seems to be a thing all of these games mm. do. Um, but here, it is you who hunts the monster who also hunts you, sort of, um, because you're paranormal investigators and you are paid to cool. identify but not apparently do anything about uh, ghosts. <laughs> so um, you have... Like a surveyor, really. Yeah, yes. You, there are lots of different kinds of ghosts, as, you know, there are, you know, evidence of subsidence and things. Um, and you um, <laughs> and you have to... There's various... They have various tells, uh, which you can detect using different tools. And so you have a van full of tools, and you pick up some, uh, uh, and uh, you creep into this, you know, uh, unlit bungalow or farmhouse or school 
And uh, you try and work out with sort of where the epicenter of the haunting is happening. Uh, perhaps you use a black light to detect ghostly <laughs> fingerprints and a, and a disappointing lack of other bodily fluids. <laughs> and say. then you, um, yeah, <laughs> I was I was checking the toilets and the baths and everything. <laughs> um, you have a thermometer. You can use the thermometer. You, in fact, most hauntings seem to reduce the the temperature of the room, which is a a thing you see on television as well. And your, yeah, it's your also a draft, so that's going to confuse the surveyors. Well, exactly. But I mean, you need to be sure. So you bring in a thermometer and see if it plunges below freezing in certain areas. And some ghosts will pollute running water, which I mean, just seems to be a kind of sort of weird thing for a dead person to be into. But a lot you know, of these are like issues the that could be like just to do with damp or mold. You realize. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, yeah, some ghosts will write "die, die, die" in a book, though. So oh, that's, that's, that's unlikely Subtle. to be mice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can set up like cameras to capture ghostly orbs of light, or indeed the um, spirit's J horror form factor, should that manifest itself. Um, and basically, the tension of the game is to get enough evidence of the ghost, uh, which you, which allows you to identify specifically which one it is. Um, and that can involve like actually provoking it to manifest by saying its name over the over the comms, um, but without provoking it so much that it lurches from the shadows and rips off your face. <laughs> and as you as you detect more supernatural stuff, your sanity drops too, which doesn't seem to have any like uh, mountains of madness style effect on your perception or your control or anything like that. It just seems to make ghost events more likely which uh, means the spirit manifests locks the exits of the, the building you're in and then stalks you through the house as you scurry into cupboards um, and it's this weird seesaw dynamic between seeking the ghost and then fleeing from the ghost I'm not sure, it, like as a piece of design I, I don't really respect it <laughs> um, but there is, there is a sort of irreducible effect to entering an empty unlit building with a narrow beam flashlight and hearing something making the sounds from the grudge next to you. I mean, that's that's mm. that's effective, even if there isn't actually that much substance to the way that the game has been thought through. Um, but I mean, the, the thing that made it effective for me was uh, was playing it with other people um, because I'm, I'm not into horror games, as I've said before in the podcast. I just find them too scary. But actually found playing this with other people not only kind of reduced the fear that I personally felt in the... In certain circumstances, it also heightened the experience of the parts that the game wasn't trying hard enough to make scary, because because we were all suddenly vibing off each other's apprehension. Um, and so I had this uh, the pleasure of playing it with Rich Stanton, who who was taking it deadly seriously, uh, <laughs> uh, which was which was bold of him because uh, neither I or Matt Castle were able to do that. And he was like <laughs> speaking in whispers so as not to enrage the spirits, and Matt Castle was just. A bag of nerves uh and i had a great fun shutting in in rooms to, to fuck with him um <laughs> and somehow this this dynamic was incredibly enjoyable even though i think the game underneath is kind of a bit crude because playing something scary with someone who is in, like in stanton's case helping he, he was sort of like helping to assert the atmosphere where the game failed and yet also i was playing with somebody who was much more scared than I was, and that sort of and that sort of gave it that the kind of positive energy you get from watching a scary film together, whilst simultaneously alleviating the trepidation that that usually just stops me from progressing in scary mm. games. Anyway, it's in it's in early access, and it's it's very rough, 
like the core is there and there's a lot of there's a lot of different ghosts and content not that the ghosts are that particularly well differentiated in what they do aside from the the you know the means of detecting them but uh and the infrastructure around it is really really wonky like the menus uh the access to the settings you can't change key bindings when you're in game stuff like that um voice comms seem to sometimes work and sometimes not and all of this stuff just sort of is just broken enough to pose actually quite a significant impediment to getting into the game but um if you have some friends and want to uh want to creep around a spooky house uh, that's uh, it's good fun. so is it, it is it full co-op in that case yes yeah 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 i don't know how many people you can cram into the your tiny van but uh, at least three people can play it together oh and the other thing i played was in fact spelunky 2 um oh, well, which uh, as tom predicted last week i found just too hard uh Same. in single player um uh, I did. I did play uh, Spelunky according to Steam for about thirty hours, but uh, I was never good at it. Uh, I never finished it, and this is just difficult enough for me to sort of go, nah, nah, not worth the time. But then I played it uh, with Stanton again, hmm. and the ability to resurrect each other makes just such a huge difference to the just the way that failure is implemented in the game, and because you're sort of chewing the fat and enjoying the pratfalls and accidentally hitting each other with skulls and things like that it just alleviates a lot of the the frustration too so that would be my sort of addendum to graham's recommendum recommendation Um, (laughs) the addendum to the recommendum (laughs) that's a good sentence (laughs) very good sentence uh yeah yeah, he said he i he he suggested i try it even though i'm not good at splunky one if that's Um, a controversial opinion then maybe we should have a referendum on the addendum to the recommendum Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I've, I've ruined this. So, Marsh, have you played, um, say, Hunt Showdown with uh, Rich Stanton and Matt Castle? Because I think I would love to watch a video of that. I think that would just be extremely funny. Uh, I've played it with them separately. I haven't played it with them together. Mm, I think that could be a good combo. Yeah, Marsh, good we need to play Hunt again soon because I haven't played it in a while because we, Paul and I moved on to Warzone quite so much as we did. But. I found a I character. I wagon in a big way, man. Yeah, I know, but I just I had a character who I can't use until I can play with you because of <laughs> their name. And <laughs> I see. <laughs> <laughs> and like I've been yeah. holding on to that like joke for like four months now, waiting, <laughs> waiting for the stars to align. Yeah, it's really good again at the moment. It went through a, a patch, or or my ranking went through a patch where I was just getting horribly drubbed, uh, almost continuously. Mm. because the people I was playing against had like just a kill-death ratio of five or something like this, uh, which is not good. I'm not good at it. Um, But suddenly it seems like we have evened up and a lot of the teams I'm playing against are uh, are idiots like I am and obligingly stand still, maybe crouch, smacking their pates, begging me to to put a bullet in them. (laughs) Uh, And that's, uh, that's brilliant. I love idiots. What have you been playing, Chris? So, as I said earlier, I have uh, finally taken the plunge into virtual reality. Well, obviously, I've had a f- whoa. That's what it sounds like <laughs> when I fall into my cabinet. Um, the um, no, and obviously, you know, I've had plenty of VR headsets coming in and out of the house through work stuff over the years. Um, but a few things prompted me, not just the Star Wars thing, mostly the Star Wars thing, to kind of have a go this time. And I, I came to a particular understanding of what I wanted to get out of it. Um, I, uh, I 
had that feeling, and I think a lot this might be familiar to people who are thinking about VR, of feeling like I needed to buy the hottest, most current thing in order to be at the leading edge of the technology in order to avoid um, a situation where my stuff goes out of date or can't play things. And that, uh, and that was always a source of anxiety because the space required for an index in its base stations, etc. We've talked on the podcast plenty of times about how incompatible that is with small roomed British houses, um, particularly that at my offices in the loft with sloping ceilings. That's bad. Not very high up either. The thing that finally kind of tipped me over the edge in a way was the most recent Oculus um, Facebook summit thing which announced that the Oculus Rift S was going to be discontinued, and that it's kind of all being replaced with the new Quest, which is the one that could be a standalone headset or plug into a PC. Um, and part of the uh, Rift S's discontinuance is it's the last Rift model that won't require, um, you know, uh, Facebook integration, and it will probably end up getting phased out somewhere around 2023, and otherwise it's not going to receive any further support. And I was like, brilliant, that is the one I'm going to buy, <laughs> because... For my purposes, I don't need a high-res screen that my PC can't handle. My PC is not terrible, but it's also getting on a little bit. And I don't want to buy a new PC. So, And also, uh, this is a headset that has good controllers, doesn't require any base stations, but otherwise has decent um, sort of room scale-ish tracking. And I'd had some good experiences with the Rift before. So I bought one. And I've really, really been enjoying it. And I've really enjoyed that decision. And I think that would be one thing just off the top of it was getting out of that mindset that I needed to go all in on VR, it wouldn't be worth it, um, was super important to allowing me into experiences that I now, where I do think there's a critical mass of experiences um, that are good enough to somewhat justify the expense. And obviously it is an expense, but uh, if I get, I am pretty confident that in the three years or so that this, this headset will be around, I will get my 350 quids worth of entertainment out of it. Um, and, and yeah, so do you have a, like a, a to play list, Chris, for VR um, stuff? Somewhat. Like um, I, the, 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 I'll talk about the big ones on the top of the list because they're going to be kind of obvious. But mm. um, I've played a lot of stuff in VR anyway. So I kind of know what Beat Saber is and I know what a bunch of them is. And I think I think VR is like people have gotten very good at making the kinds of arcade games that VR is very, VR is very good for. Yeah. Um, and the progress into the realm of more immersive experiences and more fulfilling experiences is still very hit and miss. Um, and so I played a bunch of things. I, I do want to talk about it a little bit, but I appreciate it's been talked about on the podcast before. I'm now about halfway through Half-Life Alex, uh, which is amazing. And the one thing I would say about it is it's interesting because in a way that it, it, it's far and away of all the games I've played, the one that has made the most progress towards fully realizing the potential f- for doing traditional games experiences in VR. And it obviously took a tremendous technical effort to get there. And it has to be married to Valve's ability to invest big in this kind of game. Um, and the the funny thing about it in a way is I don't think it is revolutionary, but every single interaction, every single element of its design in terms of how you interact with the environment, how your hands are realized, how, um, how movement works, how the devices that you operate work, all of that stuff feels like a, um, a, each of them is better than their peers in other games, pretty much, with few exceptions. Uh, none of it is revolutionary, but all of it is everything that collective game development has learned about making first-person adventure games in VR 
packed into one thing and then done to uh, the, possibly the highest degree it's been done. And this does have the effect of making like almost all other games feel worse, which is almost like, I almost prefer it to have been so revolutionary you couldn't compare it, whereas you actually genuinely can compare it to almost everything else. And in most regards, everything else looks a little bit worse next to it. It is great. Um, I think one of the things I found really interesting about Alex um, has been it is such a Valve shooter, and that is not a thing we've had for a while, but its design language, if you're familiar with those games, particularly Half-Life 2 and its um, uh, expansions, it's so familiar that in a way you can navigate simply by an understanding of how Valve design games. And what that is, what's cool about that is VR can be quite an alien experience, um, which isn't a pun, but I guess, and having being able to ground myself in that made it a lot more comfortable like and i could talk about this in relation to other experiences in an experience where anything can happen or where the rules might change arbitrarily um <clears throat> it can be a bit unnerving to to deal with that and also deal with the the weirdness of vr the fact that like you have this instinctive sense of like i'm going into the underground horror bit now after this i'll probably fight some combine and it'll be a bit outdoors for a while as a palate cleanser and it is you like, oh, okay i kind of know how to do this now and i know how this works um but yeah, it's great. There's a ton of great set pieces. It's very funny. The writing is great. Um, and lots of good, silly uh, ways of like, I think my favorite moments are when VR allows you to finally do things that you wish you could do in those games that follow those structures. Because like I say, it is a Half-Life game. Um, and so you're so used to that logic. And the best example of this is the bit where they, oh, so far for me, is the bit where they teach you about grenades, um, which is a very Valve thing. You enter a new level and there's a new mechanic. And in this level, we're going to explore 15 different things you can do with this. And then it's going to become a, eventually it will become a standard part of your loadout. Right now, we're not going to chill out. We're just going to throw grenades at you all the time and we're going to have you play with them. Uh, it's the same as the way Half-Life 2 is structured. And, and what that means is you enter one section of like subway industrial tunnels where every room is just fucking full of grenades because you're going to be given an opportunity to drop them from gantries down on zombies. You're going to be throwing them at combine. You're going to be throwing them through vents to open doors. You're going to be doing this, that, and the other. So they need to make you make sure you've got tons of them. And in also typical game fashion, you've got two inventory slots on your wrists and then there's what's in your hands. And so in a typical game, you are in that you know classic FPS anxiety of like, I don't want to use my grenades, um, but um, I kind of have to. So I'm going to constantly go back and pick up the ones that were left behind so that I'd have extras in case I missed and to max out my inventory. And then I realized I don't have to do this in this game. I don't have to deal with the anxiety of leaving pickups behind because the dev's given me too many. I can go to a shelf, find a milk crate, take that, put all of the grenades in the level in that and spend the rest of the level walking around holding my milk crate getting to the next encounter, putting it down on the ground, taking grenades out, throwing them, never touch my own inventory. I always stay full as far as the game is concerned and just pick up my milk crate full of stuff. And like, like a, um, like that music video where I think it's Neil Young is just pushing a trolley full of shit across the city. You know, that kind of like bag lady thing, like, like that basically just carrying everything I want with me in a basket because the physics let me do that. Uh, and it's a, it's a very satisfying way of finally breaking the FPS rule that you can only, you can't take it all with you. You fucking can, if you try. It's so cool that that works. 
yeah like, it is you know what i mean that's such a i mean it's a ludicrous workaround but <laughs> yeah the, the fact that the systems allow you to do that is, is awesome like i'm just taking this basket and leave, i'm taking my basket of stuff and leaving um <laughs> yeah there's loads of really good set pieces in it and cool moments i think the only area where it's weak and this is a segue to other things i've been doing i guess is um melee like it feels like it should have melee combat and it doesn't really um i mm. want you 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 instinctively want to kick a head crab it's just a thing you would like to be able to kick them. You'd also be able to like to pick them up while they're still alive and get rid of them. You know, wrestle with them, wrestle with them a little <laughs> bit, give them a punch. You can't really do that. Um, I think because that kind of physicality in VR is awkward, which I'll get to, but there's an element of that which feels a bit floaty. But other than that, basically, it's fucking great. I hope people learn from it and keep making games like it. The other thing I played, which was in that space, uh, which I don't think we've talked about, um, I played the first part of Vader Immortal, which is a Star Wars VR experience thing. First person game, which has been released in three parts and all three of them are out now. And I've played the first one, which is about an hour. And it is this, um, I think it might be Oculus Store exclusive, but it's um, meticulously produced Star Wars sort of narrative experience. And it's interesting as a comparison piece to Alex, because it sets about solving the issue of having an immersive time um, in a way that I think is more efficient than Alex, but it doesn't give you the same freedom. So Alex is about making sure that the player can do loads of different things. They can open drawers and pick up baskets and fill them with stuff, but you can't, but like, and Alex has to go to this tremendous expense to, to make that work and not break the game. Like Vader Immortal works in the other direction and puts you in these very lavish scenarios, um, but is very sparing of what you're allowed to interact with and kind of sets that expectation early. And in a way, that's slightly more comfortable because some of the anxiety of VR is feeling out what you can do. And some of the revelations are when you realize, I can put my grenades in a basket and I can walk off with them. But often you, you're you in this negotiation with what's actually possible given the confines of the technology and, and everything else. Vader Immortal is good because, you know, it'll do a thing which I think is quite clever where you use the sort of teleport projecting a kind of uh, silhouette of yourself and then snapping to it, teleport movement. But if there is like a particular place, like a station on your ship or a lever or something that is a good idea to stand in front of, the um, the teleport cursor, I guess, will snap to that slightly. And it gives you this confidence that like, I'm going to teleport to the bit the game wants me to be in. And that takes away some of the anxiety of like i wasn't stood in quite the right place for this or i'm, I'm interacting with it awkwardly and other than that it's this kind of like well-performed star wars adventure where you're delving into vader's castle and evading him and, and learning how to lightsaber and um you know deflecting blaster bolts and stuff like that and it's all very set piece driven um but it's quite a good ride for that i think and, and a, an effective use of that kind of technology to tell a story uh, albeit a kind of fairly standard one. And actually, to that extent, more than anything else, it kind of reminded me of immersive theatre because characters are very much acting at you. You get interrogated by an Imperial officer and it's like, wow, I'm just, I'm, I can see up this mocap actor's nostrils as he's sneering down at me in a way that I would expect a haughty Imperial officer to do so. And it's kind of, you know, it's fun for that. And then inevitably you're going to get loomed over by Darth Vader and it's very, it's very impressive. You can. Does it feel like you need to reply though? I think you need to, so no, you don't speak. Um, you're silent, which is different to Alex, where Alex does speak and it does feel like you're kind of steering her around while she talks, even though she's you. In this, 
you're being acted at. And I think that's the part of it that really reminded me of immersive theater, like crucially not interactive theater, which is because I've worked in that space and like that is a thing where you have to kind of let the audience know it's okay for them to talk or else by Mm. default they'll expect to be spoken to and that's actually i think that same mechanism works like i didn't expect to need to talk to darth vader um and they find ways of organizing the characters you have this droid who accompanies accompanies you everywhere who's played by maya rudolph which is cool and um and she does a lot of talking for you um and your job is to sort of stand there and be like, yes, I'm in this scenario. But I did find myself doing something that I've only ever associated with going to like punch drunk shows and things where it's like, there's a very specific stance you do when you're at one of these shows where you know it's not appropriate for you to become part of the scene. You're not being asked to act or to speak, but you also don't want to be like standing like a normal person. Like if someone is doing Macbeth at you, then... You can't be stood there like, hello, yes, you know, I'm waiting for the bus. So you you adopt like the stance of someone who's like receiving theatre. I don't know exactly how to describe this without doing it, but it's like standing very intensely, maybe planting your feet and being like, yeah, God, fucking hell, you are doing theatre at me, aren't you? Like trying to make the actor feel like they're kind of getting, they're engaged, right? Or you're engaging with them. And I did find myself doing that alone in my room to a big imaginary Darth Vader. Because he's telling me, like, you must come with me in order to find the thing. And I'm like, yes, I, I know. And I don't want you to feel self-conscious, giant <laughs> about the fact, you know, I don't want you to feel that you've picked the wrong audience member to emote at. So I'm going to sort of lean slightly forwards and plant my feet quite squarely and sort of, you know, be like, yes, I am a spaceman in a, on a space adventure. That's such a weird dynamic that you described that I actually, like, as you described, I do recognize what you're talking about. Like, mm. for sure, it's almost like, um so like sometimes magicians pull people up on stage to do a, a classic like closet vanishing act yeah and uh how that works is that the magician whispers into the ear of the person and says i'll oh, just go through the secret door in the back <laughs> and, <laughs> right and they and they do it because they don't want to spoil the the event or kind of undermine the the fun that everyone's having so like almost like 99 percent of the time they will just do what the magician tells them to make the trick work right and it's kind of a similar psychological dynamic there which is quite interesting like and i don't want that... to spoil the show you're putting on for me that's right so yeah it's like like be like mm. yeah so it's like uh you always kind of, i have no ego in this fight like I, I i'm i'm less important than the event that is happening and so i will play along basically and it's weird that vr evokes that yeah, it is. It's like, I think, but I find it quite consistent. Like I do find myself role playing in a way, even in, in Alex and other games, like I want to be in the moment and feel in the moment. And sometimes I'm fucking crouched on the carpeted floor of my office, but I feel like I'm ducked behind a, you know, car in City 17 under fire mm. from the combine. And then what I always find is when I die, when I die, it all falls away. Like all of that kind of sense of really being there. And like, I end up like either shrugging or dancing or like, as it loads or reloads my save it, in order to be like, you know, like, which I think might actually be what happens when your soul leaves your body after death. <laughs> like there's this big sense of like, like well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that brings me to the other thing that I've, I've played. Uh, I bang on with you so much with the last one, which I think maybe has not been spoken about either which is a game that's been around for a while now, and I think it's been quite well regarded. I'd seen it in clips and things, and I didn't know what it was. And it's a game called Blade and Sorcery, which is a 
it's called a VR fantasy sword fighting sandbox or something. Ooh. And uh, have either of you heard of this? I've not. It sounds good. Adverts for it. Yeah. Right. So it is a, the most concerted attempt I've seen to make fighting, fighting with swords, fighting with stuff work in VR. Um, and it's made in Unity, and the game as it currently is doesn't really have like a single player or progression or anything like that. It's just a series of fantasy sandbox arenas and a big menu of medieval weapons and magic spells and things you can do. And then you walk up to a book and you choose what wave difficulty of wave you want. And then gangly kind of uh, full physics, uh, sort of expressionless blender type marionette people charge at you screaming with a variety of weapons and you murder them basically or try and um it's it is like different to both alex and and vader in that it is fully invested in just simulating fucking everything hell or high water and we don't care if you vomit so like you you have a fully 3d body um, you have to calibrate your height, which is fucking humiliating. It's the only game where I've been short. Like you have to tell it because it can tell how tall you are because I was, and you have to calibrate it. It's going to feel weird. And so everyone's fucking taller than me um, <laughs> in this game. Like there are no short enemies. So like people are the same height relative to me as they are in real life. And that's unsettling. I'm really not used to that. Um, and then you can look down and see your own body and uh, you you have to use a teleportation. You're moving using the sticks on the touch controllers in my case um, for like movement and rotation, which um, I jumped straight into after I got the headset. And that was a mistake. Like it feels like I saw it described as like the game you get into when you're really comfortable with other forms of VR. And so it actually huh. took me like six hours of Alex before I could play Blade and Sorcery and be like, yeah, this is okay. And even then I've usually got like half an hour of Blade and Sorcery in me for like every two hours of something else because mm. it is full what your body does, it does. And if you're not okay with like falling in VR or being attacked very up close, then it's not great for that. But anyway, but the stuff it allows you to do is really, really cool. So you can, some weird stuff, you can click one of the sticks to kick, which is really weird because obviously it can't track your legs. So you have to be able to press a button to kick. Um, but there's something very strange about clicking with your thumb to kick because it feels like shooting a leg at someone, but not necessarily yours. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I click and one of my legs just like involuntarily flicks forward. Like, like a, like an old timey family GP has just bonked me on the knee with a little silver hammer and my knee is flung out. Um, and you can press the other one to jump. And that's a and it's a very floaty jump because you're a wizard. They use the fact that you're a wizard to cover a multitude of things you can do. And so you can do this long floaty force jump kind of thing uh, to reposition. That's actually the fastest way to move around. So like be beginner VR is like mm, super hot's a bit spicy, uh, even though I'm standing still. And then like I finally comfortable with this VR is boinging around like a medieval arena, like a moon man, heedless of the fact that you're rapidly ascending and descending all the time firing your own legs out of your crotch at people. Um, but the other way I think it does is it's fully simulating your hands and the weapons. So um, you are holding whatever weapon you're carrying, you're holding it where you're holding it. It's a physics object. You can, you when you get good at it, you can flip things around in your hands and flip them into a backwards grip. You can um, release something. You can throw things from one hand to another. You can do all of this. You can grab your opponents, which is weird to do. 
you can grab them by the shoulder or punch them in the face or push them or grab their wrists and wrestle their swords away from you. And you can like one, the best level has like multiple bridges over a canyon with ropes, like zip lines basically between them. And so you can leap in the air and hook over a zip line with a hand axe and like slide down it, like, you know, Errol Flynn and then let go and land on a different bridge and kick someone in the face. And it's uh it's really cool and really weird because I've played games like this forever, like sandbox melee combat games because I love that fantasy and that, yeah, that kind of, you know, Princess Bride or Errol Flynn kind of, you know, fencing or whatever. And, or Jedi Knight or Jedi Academy, these big sandboxes full of bots where you're just, you know, lightsabering your way through dozens of foes. And it's basically that. But the difference being that the violence is quite real. Like, it's not realistic because they're not physical bodies and they can't hit you. But there is a sense of like, um, there's a closer sense of violence in this than in most things. And it is a little bit uncomfortable. And in a way, I'm glad that hmm. it's populated by these like faceless marionette people. They're not faceless. They're, they just look like a kind of Skyrim characters, basically. And they don't really emote much because every now and then you'll get in a situation where like you punch someone with your shield to get them away from you and they trip over backwards and then you're like i just have to stab you in the neck right now because someone else is coming and then you're like you just like hacking away at somebody and is a bit real occasionally or like you get disarmed and you grab a dagger off your belt and you jam it into someone's kidneys and like christ i felt that in a way that i wouldn't normally in a game like this um which is a little weird honestly you can end up grabbing people and throwing them off bridges and they go ah and you're like, fuck, that's what I would say if that was me. And empathy kicks in. That's the thing. It's capable of triggering empathy, which most games like this can't. Um, it does feel like it's something you would see a murderer play in a um, procedural, <laughs> a cop procedural about VR. <laughs> um, so the full circle on this uh, is that it also has a really active modding scene. And a lot of those mods are like more blood, more decapitations, the ability to... <laughs> become a titan from attack on titan and eat people which is an actual mod jesus um, christ <laughs> yeah um or like pick them up and rip them to pieces and throw them at things and you know whatever um and you know i'm going to leave the broader cultural ramifications of that to for others to mull over but uh, it has a very good and full-featured Star Wars total conversion uh, called The Outer Rim, which uh, the game's gone through multiple like major versionings, and every new version validates all the mods for the old one. And this week, um, The Outer Rim got updated uh, for for the current version of the game. And it's really fun in a very janky way. Basically, it's talking about libraries of Star Wars assets. These people have taken, as far as I can tell, just every star wars asset that has either been i don't i don't want to accuse them of hoisting from commercial star wars games but definitely from other mods i suspect like you know you go online someone has probably made a 3d model of everything that's ever been in star wars and so they just dumped all this stuff into the game and now when i load up the game rather than loading up into like the tavern where you pick your weapons and load into an arena I now load into the interior of the ebon hawk from star wars the old republic as the old republic and i can walk around that and then I can go to like fairly good, but slightly PS3 era looking recreations of like or specifically Star Wars Galaxies era recreations of like Naboo or Tatooine or whatever. 
and then I can fight legions of janky looking stormtroopers and they've or Jedi or whatever and they've modded in like loads of blasters and made that work and they feel just as good as the guns do in any other game and they've modded in so many fucking lightsabers it's insane so many there's yeah. hundreds of them every expanded universe one everything from the new films everything from anything that's ever been in Star Wars it's in this and there's on the sounds and the animations and stuff and it's um it's genuinely kind of rad it's janky as fuck and like all you get is the people running at you blind but it's definitely like people have been waiting for the lightsaber fantasy in vr and that's it like that's they've they've done it it sounds um, great chris so what, what's the name of the game again sorry blade and sorcery blade and sorcery cool and the mod is called the outer rim um and um it's i, I like it's such a guilty pleasure because that brings things full circle right back to like jedi academy bot servers and just running around mincing lots of you know generic sith dudes and this is that basically except occasionally they very much murder you the funniest thing they've done and this is this is a i can't believe they've done this because it's the stupidest thing i've ever seen and it is very funny and it's very bad is you see this massive menu of star wars encounters like stormtrooper patrol or clone trooper attack or sith attack or one big sith or you know, Order 66, where you can be a Jedi and have to survive waves and waves of clone troopers, etc. The last one on the menu is com- it's called something like the Emperor Commands. And usually they're very descriptive. And I clicked on this one and it was the only one that didn't have a description, really. It was just like, you know, you know, the Emperor demands that you prove your loyalty in the most sinister way or something like this. And I was like, what the fuck is this going to be? And so you click it. And then I was on Tatooine and, and I was just standing there. And obviously, because it does that thing, it's a bit like Mountain Blade where it'll just spawn the enemies at the edge of the map. And sometimes you mm. just wait for them to pathfind to you. And so I click this and it's ready and I'm waiting. And, you know, like I wait and then I can hear lightsabers approaching. And what this is, is it's, no one asked them to make this a VR recreation of the moment in Revenge of the Sith where Anakin has to kill all the baby Jedi. But all they've done, <laughs> all they've done what? is take, all they've done is taken the, and this is the thing that saves it from being completely grotesque. They've just taken the adult like play the enemy models and obviously set their scale factor to like 0.4 or something like that. So they are like three foot tall men with beards right like they're three foot tall adult men which makes this okay and they come at you with little lightsabers and you're just down booting them out of the way and like picking them up and throwing them away and like is this a bit cathartic i mean after having put your actual height in (laughs) yeah they're almost as tall as me and it's it's uh, yeah no oh god it's it's literally like i laughed i was uh, genuinely pissing myself laughing, which is not a good thing to do with the VR headset on because it's it's a <laughs> wet enough experience as it is. Um, but um, I mean, I'm glad they. I'm glad. I was very glad. I was very grateful for the relatively janky, low verisimilitude nature of that mod at that specific moment because that's not a fantasy no one ever needs to see realized. But it is a very funny thing that they've done. Um, Sounds great. Yeah, I want to do this. What happens if you? Um... Point your lightsaber at yourself. Ignite it. <laughs> yeah, and you just you just like bleh, dead as soon as you. So that would probably work because it is very like you can have your own sword forced back into you, 
um oh, like mm. you know it is like it is a physics sandbox ultimately like it treats your sword as a thing in space and your damage it does is based on how fast it's moving and what it hits so i think that would probably work i can try that after this just try and lightsaber myself when you die they do a good thing where you the world goes black and white and everything freezes and so you're no longer moving in space but you see your own body like fall away from you like you've fallen out of your own body so i actually i would stress as well if people are horrified by the younglings scenario story i lost real badly <laughs> and like i like i got through a few of them but there's fucking loads of them and they're fucking everywhere. So, like, my version of Revenge of the Sisters where Anakin gets his legs chopped off from behind by <laughs> a three-foot-tall man with a beard. Um, <laughs> and I, my body kind of fell away from me, and I was just surrounded by tiny little murderers. Um, which, to be fair, is quite close to how the Empire actually does eventually fall. Um, so, in that sense, I guess it is canon. Um, anyway, that's that's been my week. Uh, in anticipation of being able to be an X-Wing tonight. I think there's about two and a half hours left before I get to climb into an X-Wing and uh, uh, zap some TIE Fighters. I'm very excited. I'm very excited as well. Should we do some questions from questions? Yes. Good. Well, actually, no. Um, so, oh. oh, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. So in the break that we just had, seamlessly, podcast listeners will barely know it's happened. Um we did. I did get to show you some really cursed videos of the game I was just talking about, Blade and Sorcery, and your disgusted noises of horror did maybe make me think that I should point out this is a very cursed experience full of uh, uh, horrendous violence. Lots of impaling and pinning people to walls, even with lightsabers, which doesn't even make any sense. Um, but I'm still curious to try it. <laughs> mm. It does look fun, I think. I think... Marsh summed it up. I think you were, you were rebooting your router or something, Tom, when he said mm. this is, uh, what was it, reprehensible but technically interesting? <laughs> <laughs> Just found a video where uh, a man who's used a mod to turn himself into a giant uses another mod to give himself a cat on a stick to hit people with. Not like a dead cat. Like the cat is alive and well and apparently biting as it goes. So it's probably having a great time. But nonetheless, just extremely fucking weird. And I think, honestly, that's the fate of VR because it's the fate of any technology that ends up in the hands of enthusiasts is to be used for whatever Gary's mod bollocks falls out of a human brain at any given time when given sufficient tools. I mean, that's the beauty of the PC, really, isn't it? Is that <laughs> a, cat, a big naked man with a cat <laughs> on a stick dismembering, screaming strangers. Someone in the world wanted to make that and they had they had the freedom to execute it. And is it appreciated? No, but <laughs> none, <laughs> nonetheless, it exists. Right. I mean, maybe that was the thing is um, the only thing we must all remember is the advent of technology is not, it does mean a greater access to creative tools for everybody. And that just means more completely mad bollocks. And the, the real challenge is, is uh, um, keeping that at a safe distance. I'm here for and that. I am willing to wade into that particular territory in order to be a lightsaber man. Yeah. That's the piece I've made with myself. Um, I won't be taking any further questions about this, but I will take one question from our inbox because we're running a bit short on time because I'm pretty sure Steam any minute now is going to tell me that Star Wars Squadrons is unlocked. And at that point, I'm fucking out. Yeah. Um, 
Fergus writes, Dear Crate and Crowbar, listening to the discussion of memorable locations from games in episode 340 made me think about the locations in games that I remember the most. And as I thought about them, I realized that all of the places I really remember have one thing in common. They were all kind of a pain to get around. A great example was Yggdrasil from The Secret World. In the original version of the game, this was the travel hub that you had to go through if you wanted to move between the maps. It was a massive space where each broad location was organized along the roots of the world tree. It was a great location with memorable with a memorable host in the form of an old-timey train conductor and his pet giant ancient mech. The downside of the space was you had no way to skip the portal, skip to the portal you wanted on a given route, meaning that if you wanted to go to the final portal for a given location, you had to walk past two or three other portals. It was a pain and only made worse by the slow traveling animation between each of these portals. Yet when the secret world got revamped and they changed it so you could easily travel to any location from the central hub, the place completely lost its magic. It went from a location that felt like something ancient that made no effort to be pleasant to navigate for us mere mortals and became a literal shopping center and made it that bit harder to lose myself in the world. The same is true of all the other places I really remember in love. The way you have to climb two long flights of stairs to get to the blacksmiths and kitchen in Monster World, the way roads and footpaths will suddenly veer off as they curve around a big rock, or how the streets of the cities are winding and awkward in The Witcher 3, even having to ride around on the subway in the darkness. I really think that to make a space feel real, you have to make it a little shit to get around, since that is how things are in the real world. Would you agree, or should level design always aim for maximum ease of use? Keep the great podding up, Fergus. Really good. I really like this question. And I, I, I completely see where Fergus is coming from here. Um, but I think in some of the games that uh, he mentions, they're very much like um, those places are basically admin zones. And like traveling upstairs to get to the bit of admin mm. you need to do is uh, just be, uh, after the first 10 hours, once the novelty has worn off, it's incredibly tedious. And I, I think there's about uh, Destiny, for example, where yeah. they designed the, the tower and they've actually like, uh, the, the new tower is actually larger than the old one, but mm-hmm. the actual stuff you need to do is condensed to a place where you can just like run between the bits and actually get do the admin that you need to do to progress with the game. Um, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's a matter of uh, the type, the genre of the game service games where there's like a big loot system and you need to like churn a lot of stuff i think it's terrible but i do agree actually that it can add a lot of atmosphere to a location when it's like a labyrinth or something particularly unusual yeah and i think there's a kind of a quite a fine difference between a game environment that has been constructed according to its own internal logic its fictional logic and it's a fully realized version of that and therefore what you're experiencing is like an aesthetic developers wanted you to experience and game environments that are awkward to navigate because of like a technical or an art restriction in the game itself. Mm. And I think one of the interesting things about Morrowind is it's impossible to tell in most spaces, which one of them it was. And I think that's one <laughs> of the reasons it's a genuinely credible artistic achievement is it's, it's hard to tell. Like some of those cities are like, well, you've obviously duplicated the same bit of geometry a lot. But also, you've kind of constructed a world where that feels appropriately kind of slightly alien and, and very much like you're a kind of stranger in a strange land. So it's a good way of handling that. And But that combined sense of strangeness, I think, is one of the things that gives that game its identity. Mm. Um, and I, I think also, because I think you're right, Tom, it fits with the the fe- like the feeling that you're supposed to be having in that game, which is about exploration and feeling like you're in a living space. I feel this way. I was going to mention Destiny, but in the other way, which is, 
this season in Destiny has made a particular part of the tower really important that happens to be really far away from every other part of the tower. Right. And like, I played a lot of Destiny recently. And that staircase between the top, the upper and lower levels of the tower is like a kind of fever dream for me now. I've gone up and down it so much. Yeah. So that's an example of like, as soon as you break that convenience, you feel that all the more. And it's not making it feel more real to me. It's just making me want to be able to pick up bounties from the menu, to be honest. Yeah, that's it. I have exactly the same thing with um, the Avengers uh, game, yeah. Marvel's Avengers. Oh, yeah. The design of the helicarrier, for example, um, which is based on the, the fiction, and that's what the helicarrier is supposed to be like. But there are vendors that are just like way at the back of the ship. Yeah. I can't be fucked. <laughs> I can't be fucked right. to go and pick up yeah. their stuff. But when a game realizes its menu as a 3d space that you have to traverse i think a mistake has been made but i mean yeah. that's mm. that's because the objectives with that space are just not the same as evoking a realistic space in its yeah. you know it's not if, storytelling if, if right the, yeah right Sorry. yeah if, if a space's main objective is to convince you of its real you know reality then some amount of friction i think does make sense mm. although you have to be careful not to introduce so much friction that it is difficult to perceive where to go. Uh, yeah, right. You know, there's a there's a point. There's a tipping point between QA and and uh, evoking a real space here. But it's interesting. It's a really. Uh, it brought back when I was playing Paradise Killer actually the other week, which I think is probably part assembled from um, bought in assets. I'm not sure actually, but it, it feels like it could be because, uh, one of the, the, the game's sort of aesthetic is to plonk fairly dissonant, yeah. uh, objects within this, uh, pseudo fantasy space. So you have quite grotty looking, uh, apartment blocks that could be, you know, from any urban expanse, uh, in the midst of this paradise Island, which has giant sort of crystalline statues of goat men on it. Mm. Um, and, Navigating the island, even even with like the, the the eventual kind of movement upgrades that your character gets, which give you a double jump and makes it a lot easier to move around, it's still it's still not like a, a well laid out island in terms of ease of traversing from one side to the other. Absolutely um, not. Yeah, and uh, that does actually. I, I don't think it made me like the island anymore, but it did make it. It did make some of it feel strangely more credible in a way that threw me back to the sort of um, map making scene of Unreal Tournament and its sort of uh, th that era of games where you started getting uh, tools that were accessible enough such that people who weren't necessarily level designers were creating levels. Um, that just satisfied them aesthetically without necessarily really, or recreating things that they were familiar with without really thinking about how combat would flow within the space. Mm. And those levels, I, I, I remember them fondly, not because they were any good to, to play on, but because they were, they were, they really kind of well evoked the awkwardness of walking around those spaces. Uh, and, I feel like that has sort of been lost as game mm. design and level design has been refined as a sort of uh, an art for for player navigation. To, that's there is something to be said for mm. jank and friction. Yeah, that, uh, that's such a good point. Um, so I was thinking, like Paradise Killer made me think of Pathologic, um, mm. uh, in the sense that that's a deliberately obtuse place to explore uh, and. Everything is about friction. It's about everything in that game is difficult. You can't find where you're going. You don't know what any place means. Parts are poisoned. Parts are 
full of plague and parts are full of NPCs that tell you nonsense. Um, and I think that it works for Paradise Killer because you meet the architect, right? And she's demented. <laughs> so <laughs> she's put together a world, a sort of like uh, her vision of a paradise that is actually just crap. <laughs> it's not very good. Uh, she, uh, it's almost like, um, I think this is, I think this plays in, uh, we're talking about storytelling as architecture. I think Paradise Killer does this really well because uh, the syndicate aren't human anymore. Like they've, they've lost their humanity and they've, they're sort of gesturing at uh, human behavior and the architect in particular, I think she's like, we sort of semi trying to recreate Miami, Miami. Um, but you've also got a golden temple where you sacrifice loads of people <laughs> and uh, she doesn't register the morality of that and, and also how discordant it is. Um, having said all that, it's a fucking irritating game to navigate. No doubt about it. Like uh, yeah. just the pathways is, I think it's deliberate. I think you're supposed to get lost in that place. Uh, but towards the end, I'm at the very end now, I'm about to go into the trial. Um, I, do, I was just trying to like, like mop up bits of last evidence that I need and just getting around that thing is, is rubbish. And the fact that you have to spend money to fast travel, I think it's crap as well. Um, yeah. And f- even fast traveling, it's so many button clicks and right. sort of interstitial screen wipes and little animations that it takes almost as long. <laughs> it's actually just you know, walking there, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, Although I, there is hmm. there is a there's a comment in it. I can't remember in which like little uh, menu system or dialogue it is. I think it's I think it's when you get um, upgrades to your your laptop, um, and you have to go into the menu system and click a button to install the upgrades. They just That's don't right. automatically kick in. And somebody says, you know, well, this seems a bit pointless, doesn't it? Why doesn't it just auto- automatically install? And there's a comment. Obviously, from the game designers through the, <laughs> the mouth of a character saying, "Yeah, but you know, a little bit of friction makes you appreciate these things more." I don't think that's true when it comes to UI. Actually, um, I, I agree I, with that. Well, at least you need to be sure that the rest of the game isn't providing sufficient friction for the player already for this to be really annoying. On top of, but um, yeah, so friction, uh, like you guys talked about, at Paradise Killer, and I've not much to add to it, but I think um, the kind of item hunting aspect of the game is a pointless form of friction that yeah. doesn't serve the plot. It's actually a very good mystery. I, mean, like I've, I find the characters and their perspectives and their uh, motives very, very interesting to unpack. But the actual kind of like hopping around looking for blood crystals is rubbish. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did like it. Let me know like um, what, what happens for you at the end. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll send you some... Um, uh, spoiler-gated kind of uh, chats about who I accuse in the final <laughs> trial. But I, I, I've actually been putting it off because I'm quite nervous about it for some reason. Um, uh, and, and I, yeah, I, I can't say more than that because like it would spoil stuff. Uh, but it's very hard to pinpoint who is really responsible. Um, mm. and that's what I'm kind of puzzling out at the moment, which is great. Like That's a really good mystery. My brain's gone completely blank. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> is this the end of the podcast it could be yeah all right then it is <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to do you want to do outro or do you want to 
Do you want to I stumble could... your way through it? <laughs> well, if you're going to put it like this, I'm going to stumble my way through it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you much. Sorry. I was just this thing to talk about. I should play Paradesco. I haven't uh, yet. It's, it's, I really like it. It's great. I yeah. It does like sound good. I see people glow about it, and that's exciting. Um, but yeah, that's all the questions we've got time for this week because I just noticed that Steam is now saying that Star Wars Squadrons will unlock in less than an hour. Honestly, oh if I don't God. have a good time in this game, next week's podcast might be too depressing for me to be on it. <laughs> so you can immediately find out whether or not I like it by the whether I'm not in the I'm in the next episode of this. Anyway, if you'd like to send us a question for that episode, doesn't have to be about the uh the Zoom Zoom space planes then you can do so by emailing us at questions at crateandcrowbar.com. You can also tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. There may well also be an episode of the TV and film podcast, Monday or soon, uh, yeah. which is what it's going to end up called if you're not careful, Tom, because this is how these things tend to go. Um, <laughs> Good point. Good point. If you <laughs> Be careful. Uh, thank you as ever to our Patreon supporters um, who allow us to embark on these podcasts and spin-off projects. <clears throat> Uh, you can find out more about supporting the podcast at patreon.com forward slash crate and crowbar. Uh, YouTube, that exists, youtube.com forward slash crate and crowbar, where you can find video versions of these uh, same audio experiences. Uh, we have Discord with a, a lovely community discussing many things from video games to, to tabletop games to things that aren't games at all, such as film and TV and politics. You find that at discord.com forward slash fuck. Ah! <laughs> I was doing well, fucking hell. I know. I that was, was so good. To, to yeah. tell you what a good outro that had been. So, but now I find, can't. You that won't... was a shit outro. You ruined it. <laughs> You'll find that at, uh, I don't know, marsh.com forward slash piss off I, I, you'll find it <laughs> on our website creatingcrowbar.com there's a link in the title bar which you can click for a discord invite and then you'll be there and then it's nice right anyway shit what was the rest that's basically all of it i did it slightly out of order this week because i was showing off and now look at me a ruin a husk my dreams have turned to ashes in my mouth well, i don't know why that's 2020 that's... don't know why i ate my <laughs> dreams just how it goes. that was my first mistake <laughs> anyway uh regardless i have been uh chris thurston and i have been joined by uh tom senior that's me uh <laughs> and um i'm on telly next week so Ooh. yeah uh so i'm on a, a show called x-ray for the bbc in cardiff uh sorry cardiff wales and i think it's airing on tuesday but it'll be nationally available on iplayer and they're honking about loot boxes and being annoyed at EA, <laughs> basically. I've no idea what the final cut's going to look like, but uh, yeah, you can see me there. It's going to be a classic example of uh, modern media hypocrisy where you're there on the TV honking about them loot boxes, but meanwhile, in real life, you're zooming around in an EA brand X-Wing having the whale of a time. No, <laughs> that's absolutely and, true. <laughs> and me, your friend Chris, is actively spending the maximum possible money on whatever microtransactions are in that game. <laughs> did they? Did they introduce you as a mad keen gamer? Uh, not yet. I'm. I'm. I hope they do because I uh, obviously. I, I, uh, of course, Alex was introduced in that way on a Bootsy radio show, and um, he took it very well <laughs> for what was a very stupid sentence that was said at him. <laughs> he did take it well uh, he did yeah. take it well um so yeah that that was nice but it's really cool that um bbc and certain programs is actually taking an interest in 
gaming a bit more. Uh, even though they're still not very good at covering that stuff. Um, at least now that's your fault. So oh, yeah, no, I'm, no, I'm complicit. <laughs> so uh, yes, that's also my fault. But yes, um, uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm bad at Twitter. It's crap. But I'm a, a PCG Lodo. Lodo. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, and PCG... it's Tom who is fucking this up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, PCG Ludo, L-U-D-O. Um, yeah, this is really fun. Thanks, Vegas. I've been Marsh Davis. And that is all. That. Fuck. <laughs> We're supposed to be good at this. We've done this like We don't even, I don't even drink times. anymore. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> Good job. Thanks.